Welcome to the Tally Room Podcast. I'm Ben Rowie. In today's episode, we'll be previewing this weekend's New South Wales state election. We're going to be talking about what to watch on the night, what seats are in play, but first, how the upper house might play out. My guest today is fellow cephalogist Kevin Bonham. Hello, Kevin. Hello, Ben. The New South Wales Upper House is elected to represent the whole state as a single electorate, with 21 members elected at each election. The chamber is refreshed one half at a time, with each member serving an eight-year term. The Upper House is proportional. It's probably one of the most proportional bodies in this country, and a growing share of the body consists of minor parties and independents. This election shows potential for a shift in the minor party balance with the emergence of legalised cannabis and the disappearance of the Christian Democratic Party. Kevin, what are you watching for in the upper house results? One thing I'm watching for is if Labor has a good night, which uh, polls currently suggest they will, uh, can they get enough for an outright left majority, given that the left only won 10 out of 21 last time and needs 12 this time? Or will it be some sort of uh, deadlock situation where they uh, have to work across the aisle to some degree with the shooters or whoever to get things passed? I often think about the upper house in sort of four lanes, that there's particular groups of seats. And each lane doesn't have a fixed number of seats that can change, but it doesn't change very much. You've got the coalition who won eight seats at the last election. You've got Labor, who won seven at the last election, so that's 15. That leaves six others. At the last election, there were three minor party left members and three minor party right members. At the previous few elections, there's been three minor party left for a while. There used to be two on the right, a shooter and a Christian Democrat. But last election, there was a shooter and two One Nation. So you've got this kind of 3-3 minor split, and then you've got the major parties in the middle. But if that 3-3 split maintains the same, but if there was like a two-seat swing to the left. Labor was to pick up two seats, or maybe the minor left was to pick up a fourth seat. That's the situation where you would get an overall left majority, but it could be a bit of a a messy group all the same. The thing here is that the coalition are not currently polling well enough to suggest that they're they're getting eight seats. They, They need to pick up to get eight. If they only get seven, then the question is, where is the right side getting another four seats from? Uh, one nation are quite likely to get two, but seem unlikely to get three. It will be a lot. Uh, the shooters may retain their one if they manage not to lose uh, too much of their vote. And beyond that, it's actually difficult for the right minor parties to to find a fourth seat. So that's the case that, that the left side can get at least... 11. There is a sort of a prospect for the Liberal Democrats. In some scenarios, the Liberal Democrats, if they can hold their vote reasonably high, can take advantage of Liberal preferences and they might, uh, of course, they're right next to the Liberals on the ballot paper. So that's one that I'll be keeping an eye on. Mm. And the Liberal Democrats usually do better when they're to the left of the Liberal Party on the ballot, as in you see them first, uh, usually substantially to the left. So I think having them one spot to the right of Liberals means if someone wants to vote for the Liberal Party, they could still get confused, but the, the correct Liberal vote is right there next to them. Um, so the, the, I was going to say the Liberal Democrats were the other option on the right, but I think that's kind of unlikely. They did come reasonably close to winning a seat last time, though, to be fair, when their outgoing Senator David Lionhelm quit the Senate a little bit early and ran for the upper house and famously... Um, changed his bio on Twitter to say that he was elected to the upper house before the account had finished and didn't end up winning. Um, 
maybe we talk maybe we can break this up and talking about the left minors and the right minors for a minute because the major parties are a little bit simpler their vote goes up they win more seats their vote goes down they win less seats whatever um let's talk about the right to start with uh fred nile is technically running but honestly for our purposes he's not running right like he's he's running number 2 on a ticket headed by his wife they only have two candidates in the group you need 15 candidates to get a box above the line so they have no shot of getting elected if they get a couple of thousand votes that would be amazing at this election we've got this flood of uh, candidates who are running without having 15 candidates which means that you don't get an above the line box so the niles don't get an above the line box uh, Craig Kelly doesn't get an above the line box, so they're only going to get below the line votes. The below the line voting rate is negligible. Uh, they're not going to get elected. They're just covering up the ballot paper. Um, so there's a, there's 15 tickets that actually have an above the line box, and a couple of those, Lyle Shelton's ticket and Ricardo Bosey's ticket, have will only have, appear as Group A or Bosey. I think is Group U. Uh, they'll only appear with a with a, with a letter at the top. Because they don't have a party name, yeah. Yes, yes, they don't have a party name. So that's also a disadvantage, but at least those two groups can get um, above-the-line votes. And Shelton's group has got the donkey vote as well, although that's not worth very much. It's probably worth less than half a percent. The reason why you need 15 candidates in a group is when they created the Legislative Council as an elected body in 1978, they embedded a lot of the details about how the counting process works in the Constitution with a referendum. And a bunch of that is now redundant, like uh, it includes random sampling of ballots, which actually makes it more complicated to run a computer count than if they did, they just divided ballots up fractionally, which would be much fairer. And then on top of that, there's a requirement that voters must express at least 15 preferences, which at the time there were 15 seats in the upper house. That's where that comes from. When they abolished group voting tickets after the 1999 election, the requirement for the 15 candidates meant you needed, in order to be able to cast a one vote above the line and for it to be formal, you needed 15 candidates in your group. Before that, you only needed two. So while the width of the ballot got much smaller after that 1999 reform, the length of the ballot got longer. There was a lot more of these candidates who have no chance of getting elected, but we're kind of stuck with it short of a referendum. And so, but up until now, we've had, this is the sixth election using this voting system. Up until now, we've only had three groups registered that failed to qualify for a box. This election, we have six. So I don't really know what's going on there. It's a bit of a weird one. 21 groups on the ballot, but only 15 of them really even properly qualify to to gain a significant share of the vote. The Shooters, Fishers and Farmers, you mentioned it briefly. We don't talk about them a lot. They've won a seat at every election since 2007. Uh, They did really well in 2019 when they also won three lower house seats, but those lower house MPs have left the party. They're running as independents. We don't know what that's going to do to their upper house vote. Maybe those same voters will vote for those independents and keep voting for the shooters in the upper house, but it's it has to have had some effect on their internal party cohesion and structure and campaign ability and all those things. One would assume that the shooters vote is going to be down substantially, but they can lose half their vote from last time and still win a seat. So the question is, Is it going to be down that much? Is it going to be down more than half and put them to the position where they actually lose? 
Now, if they actually lose, that's even worse news for the right because the right then needs to find a seat to replace them. And there's just a limit of options in terms of who can win seats on the right-hand side. And then One Nation, up until the 2019 election, the Greens were the only minor party that ever won a second seat. They won their second seat in 2003, and then they won a third in 2011, which they haven't been able to repeat. One Nation managed to win two in 2019. They seem like they're in a reasonably strong position. Mark Latham quit his seat four years early so that his name would be at the top of the ballot. I suggested that was self-interested and a effective tactic to get quite a high-profile name on the ballot in 2023, and he strongly objected to that and suggested it was just an expression of democratic principle objecting to the principle of eight-year terms. The number two member did not resign and do the same thing. Um, and, of course, if Latham manages to get elected to a new term, which he will, his party will then be able to fill his old seat with someone else who won't have to face the voters at all. So that it seems like a clever tactic. It'll be interesting to see how that goes. They do seem like they're doing reasonably well. And that his number two candidate, Tanya Mialuk, is the uh, outgoing uh, member for Bankstown, who was a member of the Labor Party until um, her seat was abolished in redistribution. She lost a pre-selection and uh, things went ugly from there. There was some speculation about uh, One Nation possibly getting three, but it was based on some internal polling that was not very well uh, interpreted by the journalist in question. Uh, They only just got two last time. They should pick up votes fleeing the shooters. They should pick up votes fleeing the coalition they still need to pick up a lot of votes to get to get three. So, and in some regards, their their campaign hasn't been completely impressive. Their their lower house rollout was a bit uh, bit underwhelming. There was sort of talk about them running heaps of candidates. They ended up only running, I think, seventeen. But yeah, they should be able to get two at least. So that's the right. On the left, I think, was possibly a bit more interesting. The Greens have won two seats at every election except 2011. Uh, but what happened at the last election was Jeremy Buckingham, who had been in MLC, he lost a pre-selection and so got the third spot on the ticket, which is where he'd been elected from in 2011. But there was a general expectation he wouldn't get elected from that position. There was a s- scandals involving accusations of sexual assault and the party kind of pushed him out and he ended up quitting. Um, he's running this time as the lead candidate for legalised cannabis. We'll talk about legalised cannabis in a sec. But for the Greens' perspective, it also led to one of the other Greens MLCs, Justin Field, quitting the party after the election. So the Greens will win back field seat. That's pretty clear. They'll have two again for a total of four. But they could have a fifth. That's possible. Uh, they've been pushing hard for that. They've really been promoting the profile of their number three candidate, Linda June Coe. The Greens tend to get about the same vote in the upper house that they that they get in the the lower house. Unlike the major parties, the major parties' um, upper house vote tends to run quite a bit behind their their lower house vote. So for the Greens, you can just sort of watch how they're polling in the lower house, and if you if you believe that that's accurate, then you can just transfer it. And yes, it's been sort of like maybe two, maybe three. Um, they had a very Bad lower house poll, the resolve poll just out today. So, uh, be interesting to see what other polls put them on in the um, in the final week. That's the resolve poll released on Monday, right? Yes, that one's probably an an outlier, but we'll we'll see. So, it's also to do with the standing of various parties that will be competing with them as to what exactly they need to get up. 
So animal justice, they've won a seat at the last two elections, but those two wins were the lowest vote share to ever win a seat in the upper house. We'll talk in a minute about the impact of preferences, but that was a big part of it there, that they overtook other candidates to win. Um, but that does mean, like, maybe they'll build their vote, but they didn't poll particularly well at the Victorian election, and I think they could be a bit vulnerable to uh, legalised cannabis, who... Let's talk about them as well. Apart from having Jeremy Buckingham as their candidate, and I don't think that's a big factor in their potential success. They've actually polled really well at the Victorian election. They polled over 4% statewide. They did pretty well in WA. And part of that was group voting tickets, but they also got a, a not insignificant primary vote share. And in the New South Wales Upper House, a not insignificant primary vote share gets you a seat. Uh, they also were the highest polling party that didn't win a seat in the Senate at the 2022 election as well. Yes, these two parties may well be competing for one seat. It's, it is possible they could both win. Uh, but legalised cannabis have done well basically since they changed their name to legalised cannabis. Uh, they, their voters picked up a lot from the, the vote that they used to get under the old hemp name. And looking at the Senate results, legalised cannabis had enough vote in the New South Wales Senate to get elected at this election if they if they hold it. Um, and animal justice could be struggling if they're just competing with legalised cannabis for one seat. Uh, although it's worth noting legalised cannabis didn't get a great position on the ballot. So in as much as they attract votes through people looking through the names and going, oh, that one sounds good. They might get a little bit less of that this time through to their ballot order. I think legalised cannabis also have not just a left appeal. There is some part of their appeal that crosses over. And in, in rural areas, I think they're actually competing for votes with One Nation. So those are the minor parties. We've kind of talked about the position of the major parties relatively, but the Bottom line is there's currently 20 members of the left in the upper house, including Labor, Greens, Animal Justice, and the ex-Green, Justin Field. And on the right, there's 22. Uh, that includes One Nation, uh, Fred Nile, who's on his way out, the Shooters, and the Coalition. If there's a swing of one seat from the right to the left, that would see a 21-all split, and a swing of two seats would see the left have a majority. So... It's um it's going to be an interesting situation. The last New South Wales Labor government had the option of working with the Greens, but would often choose instead to work with the Shooters and the Christian Democrats in the final days of the, uh, you know, in the car the final term of the Labor government. Um, they had four of those minor right wingers they could work with compared to four Greens. But now you look at the potential upper house split. Fred Nile's gone. The shooters are down to two seats and you might have four One Nation members. A lot harder, I think, for Labor to work with One Nation. And you look at those numbers and you go, the Greens aren't enough on their own, but they kind of can't really get around the Greens. Like the Greens will actually have a bit more influence, I think, if Labor wins this election because, you know, they might need the Greens and the shooters at the same time. That would be messy. But um, they're kind of going to be in a situation where they kind of need everyone they can work with if you assume that One Nation is a bridge too far. If the left wins 11, then it's very likely that Labor, assuming that they win the election, will be uh, having to uh, to work with either 
the Greens or One Nation on everything. Or the Coalition. Yeah, or the Coalition. So, yes, there isn't an, an obvious path where you can uh, sort of avoid uh, both the Greens and One Nation. Now, before we finish up in the Upper House, preferences. Uh, we've now had three elections in a row where what the result looked like on primary votes. You know, the first two elections under this voting system, it was basically like closed party list. Primary votes were all that mattered. Preferences didn't make a difference. But from 2011 onwards, the primary votes, when you look at that compared to the final result, there's always one right winger who was on track to win on primary votes and ended up being overtaken by a progressive who wins instead. It was Jeremy Buckingham for the Greens in 2011 over independent Pauline Hanson. And then it was Animal Justice 2015, 2019 over uh, Liberal Democrats in 2019 and no land tax in 2015. So it does have an impact. It does matter. It does look like preference flows are increasing over time. There was a drop in the just vote one rate in 2019. And that drop is stronger amongst parties of the left. And that has made a difference. But Does that happen again this time? It's not only that the left voters tend to be more likely to give preferences, it's also that preferencing between different kinds of right parties, and this is something that I've noticed in the Senate as well, is quite fragmented. Christian right voters don't preference one nation types and... Uh, it has been the case in the past that uh, there's not much preference flow between either of those types and the Liberal Democrats either, although that has changed a bit with the whole vaccine mandate thing, which has brought the Liberal Democrats and One Nation closer together. And indeed, when Hanson lost in 2011, she was leading until the final round. And it was Gordon Moyes who was running for Family First, but was kind of like he had been Niall's ally and they'd fallen out. He was kind of like moderate Christian right. It's a bit hard to describe that. His preferences pushed both the Nationals and the Greens ahead of Hanson. That was a very interesting result, but it does illustrate your point about the different factions of the minor right not really playing well together. And I would also note One Nation, this is a factor in both the lower house and the upper house, are proudly announcing that they are exhausting everywhere. That is a point of principle for them that they do not mark preferences and like whatever stick to your principles if you want but uh that makes a difference you know that might make a difference of a seat between the left and the right yes it seems like one nation have really grabbed onto this just vote one kind of thing you know just vote one pox and all the others we're 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 sort of pure and we hate everybody kind of (laughs) rhetoric and it's the right parties sort of encouraging their supporters to just vote one and stop does not help with the overall balance. I, I don't think that One Nation particularly care. I think they just want lots of want as many seats as they can get. Let's talk about the night. Our polls close at 6pm on Saturday night. Uh, Kevin, what will you be watching for in those first two hours? So the early counting is good in terms of watching the uh, rural seats, the, the Western New South Wales seats that were Shooters versus Nationals last time and that are uh, Independents versus Nationals this time because you have a lot of really tiny booths in them and you start to see things happening in those very quickly. So I'll be keeping an eye on those, especially since we don't really have any polling that I've seen for those seats of any quality. So I don't know what's happening in Bowen and Murray. You just get people saying, oh, I've heard this or I've heard that, but nothing robust. Um, So I'll be keeping an eye on those quite early on. Uh, There'll be several... uh, teal challenge seats that I'll be uh, trying to keep an eye on. I may especially keep an eye on uh, North Shore because it's an easy one to compare with last time because it had a similar race last time. 
I mean, one of the things about these teals is probably a bunch of them won't be at all competitive, but we don't really know which ones those are, right? And we're going to have to, early in the night, we'll probably start with a list of seven or eight. And then within an hour, it'll be like, okay, these are the two or three that are actually interesting. That did kind of happen a little bit in Victoria. Now, probably we'll start getting substantial results around seven. It's worth noting that the Electrical Commission this year has a hard stop. They stop counting at 10.30 p.m. They've made it an occupational health and safety issue. I think they have a point. That does mean presumably there'll be results that come in after 10.30, but not that long after 10.30, and it will, it will quickly um, dry up after that. Probably that's enough to get most primary votes in the lower house, and most two candidate preferred in the lower house done, we probably will only have a very patchy picture of the upper house by that point, I think. Maybe it helps a bit that there's only 15 above the line groups. Yes, and I'm not sure how we'll go with the uh, lower house, some of the pre-poll booths, for instance. It, it, the, I understand their policy to be they, they don't start a count, that they don't think they will finish by 10.30. I think it's very reasonable for the Electoral Commission to draw a line there and say, particularly, uh, say this is someone who was a one-day employee of the State Electoral Office in 2003. It's a very long day. Like, you turn up at, I don't know, 6.30, 7 in the morning, and you're there until at least 10 o'clock. You get a break, not a very long one. It's a very well, relatively well-paid day, but it's a long day, and it's a lot to expect people to be accurately counting late at night. So I think that's fair enough. So let's talk a little bit about what kind of seats are interesting. I think, uh, from my perspective, Labor versus Liberal seats, um, I think I'm really interested in Parramatta, not just because I live here, but there's a lot of talk about Parramatta, uh, about Labor doing well. Penrith, Penrith's super marginal, but um, it's still considered that maybe the Liberal Party is doing relatively well there. I feel like if the Liberals can are looking like they're holding under Penrith, that suggests the swing to Labor is relatively small and they're going to have a lot of trouble Uh any particular highlights for you that you're going to be checking out? Yeah, the suggestion with Penrith is that the uh, the Liberals' vote is holding up better further out west, which is similar to what happened in the in the federal election, uh, and that's that's supposed to explain why uh, there's actually some seat polls that have shown Penrith as being um, close and Parramatta as being uh, way gone. So, be interested to see how those pan out. Uh, I'm if the the swing to labor is really on then there are all kinds of things that can that can fall i'm keeping an eye on pretty much everything up to about 9% on the pendulum so uh, that goes all the way up to uh ride which is you know on 8.9% but ride has a, a history of bouncing around a lot it you know it's, it's sort of become a lot safer for the liberals than it was so it got a, it, it has a retirement, so it, it may bounce back. Um, the only seat really that I'm watching further up the radar is Clamour because of uh, uh, unique circumstances with Gareth Ward, which um, this is a very strange situation where you have an independent MP who's suspended from Parliament facing very serious accusations, which he denies, and the Liberals getting their act together very late in the piece, running a dropping candidate from over 100 kilometres away. Um, it's hard to say what is going to happen with this this weird contest. There's so many unknowns in Kayama. I mean, first of all, we don't know how much of his vote Gareth Waters held on to. You would think 
that he would be quite damaged by the things that have happened to him. There's a lot of chatter, though, that he remains relatively popular and quite a lot of conservative voters will still vote for him, but they won't all. Like, he's not the Liberal candidate. There is a Liberal candidate. You know, like, if he gets 30 35%, that's pretty impressive, but that's still a long way off winning. And I wonder a lot about how many of those Liberal voters are going to preference. They're not used to preferencing, and the Liberal Party's not recommending preferences. So... I feel like, you know, it's a 12% margin, something like that. You would normally not think Labor could win that, but um, I think Labor could could have a real shot there. That's going to be one of those ones where we, we early on, we're not trying to work out who's winning, but just trying to get the lay of the land. What is actually happening in this seat? You know, like maybe it's over really early. You know, maybe Ward gets 5% and it's just a traditional Labor versus Liberal contest. Um who knows? Uh, I'm really interested as well in Barwon and Murray. They're the more marginal ex-shooter seats. Uh, Murray in particular, Helen Dalton, sort of a bit more progressive than the other rural independents in Western New South Wales and has been hit really hard by Club's New South Wales campaign. Uh, and Balmain. Uh, the Greens in Balmain. Uh, it's the first ever Greens MP elected in general election in a single member seat to retire. It's never happened before. How much of the Greens vote there was Jamie Parker's personal vote? How much of it was just people just liked the idea of having a Greens MP in general? I think we'll largely find out on Saturday. Uh, one of the things to really watch in Balmain, it also applies to Newtown and Summerhill, but I don't think those seats could be potentially in play. The Liberal Party has registered two different how-to-vote cards for those seats. One with they exhaust, which has been their policy all along under optional preferential voting since these seats became Labor Greens contests. They just sit it out and let the Labor and Greens voters work it out amongst themselves. Um, but they've also registered a second how to vote where they preference the Greens. We don't know if they're going to use that. Maybe they haven't decided if they're going to use it. Maybe they've decided to do it and the other how to vote is a ruse. That's going to be worth watching too. We've seen in a large number of seats that parties have registered alternative versions of their, their how-to-vote card, and Labor's done this in some of the seats where the shooters are running. They've registered one card where um, uh, they preference the shooters and one card where they um, they don't preference anyone. I should stress these are, these are just recommendations so the voter can decide whether to follow them or not. Uh, it may be an insurance strategy you know, if you... If you uh, preference the shooter and then you discover that the shooter is even more unpalatable than Robert Borzak, then you might want to uh, not preference that shooter anymore. Um, so, yes, the, the Liberals, I, I think if the if the Liberals think the Greens are uh, in trouble in Balmain, they might well want to uh, hand out the card that preferences the Greens because there is this bit of a case that, that which major party has the most seats might end up mattering if it's a, if it's really, really close. I, I don't place that much stock in it myself. I, I have an article uh, uh, up on my site about uh, Labor's attacks on the on the Greens over this seat and their, their attempt to convince voters that a vote for the Greens is a vote for Dominic Perrottet. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a tricky one, I think. There's a tiny skerrick of truth behind it, but they have stripped it of all nuance and muddled the issue. So you're not really sure if they're talking about preferencing or about hung parliament. They're talking about hung parliament, to be clear. It could be about minor party members going, who, which party's got the most seats? I think that's a very silly way to decide who should form government. I think looking at something like the two-party preferred vote makes a lot more sense, um, although that's not perfect either. Like 
Uh, I've got a little bit of analysis on my website about how Alex Greenwich's seat, at least before the redistribution, was theoretically 2PP favoured the coalition, but there's this huge chunk of progressive voters who were voting Labor or Greens in the upper house and voted for Greenwich and then just exhausted. Because why would they bother preferencing? They know Greenwich is going to win. But if it's a Labor versus Liberal 2PP, they probably would preference Labor Party. But that's not perfect either, but that would be a far better metric if you really were stuck on the fence and you couldn't break a tie. I think it could also come into play as well if you end up in a situation where Labor needed both like the shooters, who they actually get along with reasonably well, I'm sorry, the ex-shooters, or the Greens, and they need both. That could get complicated, and having less Greens and more Labor members would make that easier. Um, that's probably not a situation where that's the whole crossbench. Like if that's the whole crossbench, probably the coalition will govern. But if you're in a situation where there's like 11 crossbenches and Labor needs six, and some of those six really hate the other part of that six, um, that's the situation where I think could come into play. But again, we're talking particularly niche scenarios. There's a whole bunch of other scenarios where those green seats push Labor over the line and um, give Labor a majority, but maybe give uh, Greens members some influence over Labor, which of course Labor doesn't want. But I think probably a lot of those voters in Balmain do want, you know, like they've they've voted for the Greens for a reason. Like, honestly, if you if the only thing you care about is Labor winning a majority, you should vote for the Labor Party. But people have more nuanced uh, desires than just having a Labor government. I think in terms of Labor and Greens contests, we should also keep an eye early in the night on Lismore because uh, Lismore has been... Uh, redistributed to the point where if you rerun the the last election on the current boundaries i believe that the uh, the greens get over labor into second and then the weak flow of labor preferences causes the nationals to win the seat so it's actually a notionally national seat based on the the full distribution from the last election um i haven't heard any suggestion that this is going to happen again, but if you look at what happened in the federal election with the Green vote in this area, the Labor vote collapsed and they almost uh, lost the federal seat of Richmond. So this is one to keep an eye on just to see if there is a further Green surge in Lismore. Yeah, I get a lot of comments from people who are just like, Janelle Saffin's fine, she'll get a big swing towards her, she's been really great for the floods, blah, blah, blah. Maybe, I don't know, but like that didn't happen in the federal election. It's one worth watching. You know, if Saffin gets elected with a big swing towards her, then... That'll be that. But um, the one other seat I would mention, probably one of my favourites, weird weird seats is South Coast. That's the one where the Greens candidate has been the mayor of Shoalhaven since 2016. She's won re-election uh, as the directly elected mayor now. She's won election twice. Um, what's weird about that one is the last election, she won 37% of the vote after preferences and got elected mayor because the right-wing vote split between so many candidates and just exhausted everywhere that they couldn't get anyone elected. So that's an interesting one where it's about it's about the same margin as Kayama. It's about 12%. So you'd normally say if it was a traditional Labor-Liberal contest, you'd be like, you know, if Labor was on, on the high point, maybe they could win it, but probably not this time. And that's probably the case anyway, but there's this added factor that the Greens have a very strong, a highly credentialed candidate. And I think often in Labor versus Greens contests, there does come a lot down to like, who has the cred to achieve policy outcomes rather than the actual differences in policy. Um, if she gets ahead of Labor, that would be interesting. 
if there's more votes there. This kind of seat you could imagine a situation where there's like a progressive majority, but enough of those votes exhaust that the Liberals hold on. That's one to watch as well. It's probably going to be one of those ones that you watch 15 minutes and then go, oh, nothing's happening. Move on. Go back to the main game. But South Coast, keep an eye for South Coast. Maybe something weird will happen and then you'll be able to say, oh, I heard about that on this podcast. South Coast is also another one on the uh, the long list of vacancies. The Coalition have so many vacancies this election. Mm-hmm. And the long list of seats where there's a councillor running as well. A lot of councillors running. A um, lot of vacancies. Uh, it's going to be one of those moments where there's going to be a quite a refreshed parliament, even if the uh, party balance doesn't change that dramatically. So that's about it for this episode of the Tally Room Podcast. Thank you, Kevin, for joining me. Thank you. You can find me on Saturday night as part of the ABC radio coverage from 6pm on ABC Radio Sydney and ABC Local Radio in New South Wales, also on news radio and online. And I'll be back on the Tally Room to continue analysing the results from Sunday morning. Kevin, where will you be on election night? I will be at kevinbonham.blogspot.com as far as I know, or if I'm somewhere else, there will be a notice there saying where I will be. So if you want written analysis of the election you can go to kevin and if you want something in auditory form um tune into abc to listen to my thoughts in between all the politicians and journalists as you usually get you can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice if you like the show please consider rating or reviewing us on itunes you can follow the tally room on mastodon at tallyroom at mastodon.au or like us on facebook this podcast is made possible thanks to the generous support of our donors on patreon sign up at patreon.com slash tallyroom Information about this podcast is available at tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to the tallyroom at gmail.com. Thanks to Krista Bro for writing the music you hear in this episode. Once again, thanks for listening. <laughs>